there's safety in numbers. That's one of the rules women learn in order to keep themselves safe. We're told traveling alone can be dangerous, that we can protect ourselves by traveling with a companion. But this wasn't the case for 15-year-old Cynthia Leslie and her 13-year-old sister Jackie. On July 31st, 1974, they told their family they were going to go babysit, and they left their house together, never to be seen again. This is their story. Hi, I'm Vanessa. And I'm Amy. And you're listening to She Goes by Jane. At the end of this episode and every episode, we will be joined by a special guest who will read an original poem by Amy Baker about the women we're featuring. This episode features best-selling author Catherine McKenzie. Hi, Vanessa. Hi, Amy. So, Amy, you just got back from Arizona. I did. It was such a great trip. For our listeners who don't know, I got my MFA in creative writing at Arizona State University, and I was invited back and got to to revisit all the places I used to go. So one of the reasons that I really appreciated visiting Arizona right now is that it's it's actually the place where I started to write poems for missing and unidentified women. Like the kernel took place in my apartment in Tempe, Arizona, and blossomed into the book and then a movie and then now this podcast. One of the first stories that I came across is the one that we're talking about today. And first, it was a local story to me, like Phoenix and its surrounding cities have kind of morphed into like one giant blob. But back in the day, Tempe and that's where I lived and Mesa would have been neighboring cities. And we're talking about a case that happened in Mesa, Arizona. Oh, wow. So so when you went back just now, were you thinking about like this case while you were there? I was. It was at the top of my mind the entire time that I was there because I just associate it strongly with like deciding to write this collection and also thinking about that space and time. It's kind of coming full circle then at this point where you you were there and you you started your project Doe and then now the film and this podcast and then you go back just before we talk about this case. It's got to feel kind of strange to you at this point. Yeah, I mean... It's it's sort of a different feeling talking about a, a story in the space where it happened. Like it has a very different feel to it. And the reason that I picked this case is like, you know, first that it's local. And then second, that it's the t- story of two teenage sisters, Cynthia and Jackie Leslie. And they went missing on the same day. And when I saw this story, like I could not get over sisters missing at the same time and thinking about the kind of the pain and trauma that family experienced losing two kids. And I sat with this story for a long time before I started working on a poem for it. Right, because it's an absolute nightmare situation. I mean, it's it's horrible enough a lot of these cases that we talk about where one woman, one daughter goes missing, but I don't I can't even imagine losing both at once. Right. And First, you know, generally Vanessa doesn't know much about our cases before we begin, but we included this in our film. She, so she does know kind of the basics of it and kind of the way that I knew about it. But this is the first poem that I wrote for Missing and Unidentified Women was for Cynthia and Jackie. And we talk more about my writing process in our Behind the Poem series, which is on Patreon, where we get more into the whys and hows of deciding how to use poetry as an art form for activism and the poems themselves. But 
I wanted to bring that up a little bit here because it's such a central part of our podcast and it's really such a central part of the creation of the collection to begin with. And so when I was just in Tempe, I gave a reading at Arizona State. They were lovely enough to host me alongside another writer, Leah Myers. And the story of Leslie's sisters and the poem that tries to honor them, that's the first one I told at that evening reading because these sisters came first for me in the creation and decision to work on these stories. What a great way to go back and just like reminisce over your process and be there and, and thinking that through. But also, I'm sure that uh, everyone listening really appreciated that you started with that poem too. Yeah. I mean, I think there's that connection to that place, right? Mm -hmm. And I want to emphasize before we get started that their family is still very actively looking for answers. And I'd like to think that we're doing our small part in sharing it and trying to amplify their story. Right. I think when we were talking about this case for the documentary, you said that they'd be in their 60s about now if they were still out there and that their families were still holding out that hope that they were still out there. Yeah. I mean, I think there's this kind of like, you know, it's like the double-edged sword kind of thing. Like there's, you hold out hope, but then also there's like the practical, realistic side of you that also realizes the limited possibilities for that. So, you know, there have been no answers since. So that Leslie's sisters are still missing. Um, and we're going to highlight their story today to try to see if any of these things can jog someone's memory and help move this story forward in some way. And that's why I think it's important to tell these stories and remember them. I agree. So publicly, we don't know a lot about the Leslie sisters because there wasn't a lot about them shared early on. But from what I've read, 15-year-old Cynthia Leslie and her sister, 13-year-old Jackie, were probably like a lot of teenagers in the 1970s. I grew up in the 1990s and they kind of sound a lot like kids I knew. Like they're a little bit troubly, they're a lot kind, and they love their family a lot. There's also a lot of freedom in those days, I think, with kids. Like not, I don't want to say that people didn't watch their kids, but I know that from like firsthand experiences in the 90s, 13 was a totally acceptable age to go places by yourself. And I'm guessing it was similar in the 70s as well, where now I think we're all like, because of stories like ours, right. <laughs> of the ones we tell, we're all watching those little, we, we consider 13 now, I think pretty young compared yeah. to how it was considered when we were kids. You know, and kind of the stuff that they were doing is not necessarily unusual, which I'm going to get into. Mm -hmm. So they were born in California, but at some point the family relocated to Arizona. And they lived in a town which is considered the gateway to Lake Powell and the Glen Canyon Dam. But despite this, it's Page, Arizona, and it's a relatively small town. It's still relatively a small town, like a lot of places in Arizona. And with a small town in Arizona, when their father is diagnosed with cancer, the family is forced to relocate to get better medical care. And they relocate in 1974, the same year the girls go missing. That's terrible. Yeah. So there's a lot going on. So they had just moved when this happened. Yeah, not long after. Wow. Now, there are a few major medical centers in Arizona. So if you're going to go somewhere, you're going to end up in the Phoenix metro area if you need more complex medical care. So specifically, they moved to Mesa, Arizona. At the time, Mesa was a lot more rural than it is today. So if anyone's familiar with the Phoenix metro, Mesa now just kind of blends into all the nearby cities so it's hard to tell the difference between them sometimes but back then it was much more orientated around farming 
So you have like huge swaths of land that were like devoted to things like citrus groves. So we're not exactly picturing Mesa in the same way it looks currently. So was it like just like a small community of houses in this farmland area? Like I'm just trying to figure out like what it would look like to me. Yeah. So it's still relatively large. It's got a medical center. It's still bustling. But at this time, like Phoenix is starting to grow, like the Phoenix metro area. Okay. And so like you're getting development and you're getting changes and like lots of things are are fluctuating. And from my experience, things in in that area change pretty rapidly. Like when I on my visit, what I the landscape I knew is completely different than what it is now. So things can just kind of change pretty quickly. But at the time, it's like a little bit more developed. So we're not talking small. Okay. It wasn't tiny. Like, not like a tiny farming town. Like no. Okay. Yeah. So we're not picturing still, tiny farming town. Okay. It's still kind of like a, a bit of a city. Yes. Okay. So the Leslie sisters are now living at the Desert Sands Mobile Home Community, which, by the way, still exists under a new name. And on Wednesday, July 31st, Cynthia and her sister were at home. Their mother says that the phone was ringing nonstop for the girls all day. Now, Cynthia and Jackie had, again, just moved to the area, but it seems like they were making a lot of friends. So they hadn't started school yet. We're in the middle of summer, but they had started to make friends around the Mesa community. So we're thinking all these phone calls came from like local kids. It seems to be so. There's nothing that like really necessarily stood out except the phone was ringing all day okay and you know i remember back in the day having like a single phone in our house and it would be like your mom being like get off the phone right yeah <laughs> <laughs> yep yeah so at around 5 45 irma and albert these are the girl's parents they leave for church while they're gone the sisters get at least one more phone call and it's my understanding here that the call comes in for cynthia after they get off the phone they tell their grandmother that they've been asked to go babysit and that they should be home around 1 a.m. So the girls are coming home at 1 a.m., but what time are they leaving about? So the police reports say at approximately 6 p.m. they leave. So they just said goodbye to their grandma and then they left around 6. Well, with one extra thing, when the girls leave, they write a note to their mom, Irma, and it reads, Mom, gone to babysit at same place, Cindy and Jackie. Okay. Did they typically do a lot of babysitting jobs together? It's, I'm not sure if they typically babysat together. And there are two interpretations of this message that they wrote to their mom. One is that when they say same place, it means as in the same place they had babysat for in the past. And another interpretation is same place means that they're planning to babysit at the same place together. Okay. Which would seem like if they're going out two young girls that late at night, it would seem safe for two of them to be there together. Right. And, you know, they're, as a younger sibling, which I am, I am, I would tag along with my brother, right? It's not unusual, particularly because they're in a new place that a younger sibling would be like, right, I'm coming with you, right? Right. And like I said, at night like that, you know, the kids are sleeping. So it would be nice to have somebody to have spend time with. Right. So it turns out, though, that this question of 
where their baby's sitting and what they actually meant and their message doesn't really matter that much because they're not actually planning on babysitting. So where do you think they were intending to go? So this is where the story starts to split a little. And I personally think that nuance in this story matters. And I think it matters because now we're dealing with memories that are like now roughly 50 years old. And maybe this nuance can help move this case forward a bit more. So the first thing you need to understand before I get into where they might be going is that there seemed to be very little news coverage of Cynthia and Jackie's case when it came out in 1974. And this is actually a huge contention for Irma, their mom, because, and I completely understand it, but it's because it feels like no one is listening and that the police aren't doing enough. Now, Irma does a lot of legwork on her daughter's disappearance, and newspapers articles start appearing more in the 90s and 2000s. And in those articles is the story that I knew about these sisters. And that is that instead of going babysitting, the sisters were actually sneaking out to a party. And the reports from those party yielded some mixed testimonies of whether partygoers saw them or not there. Some say they were there and some say they weren't there. And that's the story that I knew. So what's the new story? So we have the benefit of having some of the police reports, and by some, I mean close to 270 pages of police documents. These reports are, of course, heavily redacted, so our listeners are going to have to bear with us on this. But in the police reports, though, the story of where the sisters were actually going is slightly different. In these reports, it's that Cynthia was seeing a boy that her father forbade her from seeing, and that she was secretly meeting with him anyway. What do we know about this boy that she was going to go see? We don't know a lot about him, but that has not stopped online forums from speculating about who he is and what might have happened. Now, some of the speculation that she couldn't see him comes down to some people are like, oh, he must have been a troublemaker or up to no good. And that's why the father said she couldn't see him. And because we often and rightfully so are suspicious of male partners, um, there's some people who are throwing around some much bigger allegations in his direction. But the truth is we don't actually know much about him. But we do know from the police reports is that the father didn't want Cynthia seeing him because he is not of the same race that Cynthia is. Cynthia is white. He's not. And I'd like to be more specific here, but his name and information is redacted in the police file. Okay. Do we know how old he was? Anything like that? We don't. So it's definitely when it gets to his sections, it's much more heavily edited. Yeah, right? there's nothing. But what the police reports do provide us is that on the night of their disappearance, Cynthia was supposed to meet up with this boy and he waited all night for her and she never came. Okay. So she didn't make it to his place. His place. Yes. Police do question this boyfriend, but this doesn't necessarily seem like a direction they were pursuing too heavily. He doesn't seem to have much information beyond he was waiting for them and they never came. Which sounds like it could be the truth on that. Yeah. And so that's why, you know, sometimes when we, we talk about online forums, like, and people are trying to put together pieces, sometimes that can just be hazardous because there just doesn't seem to be... This doesn't seem to be a direction that was necessarily a viable direction to go in. 
Right. But people are always very inclined to jump to it's the husband or the boyfriend. Right. Because I mean. It usually is. It often is. Yeah. But in this case, it might not be. It might not be. I don't usually do a lot of speculation about the stories that we share, right? Because I think it's important just to kind of stick to the facts. But it could also be that both stories are true. Like maybe there was an intention of ultimately going to a party that night or perhaps before or after meeting the boyfriend. I don't know. But in any case, the girls do not come home that night. Meanwhile, Irma and her husband arrive back at home. And presumably they read the note, talk to the grandmother, and find out about the babysitting plan. So in Irma and Albert's world, Cynthia and Jackie are accounted for. They are at a place they are supposed to be. So nobody's going to worry till after one o'clock. Right. Now, Cynthia and Jackie did not arrive back home at 1 a.m. And it doesn't seem that there was too much concern at this time either. And we're talking about like still this idea that they're at babysitting, they're doing something. Um, this is also pre-cell phone days, so the idea of checking in, not really going to happen. It makes me feel very thankful that we have cell phones. Right, like how much that has changed Yeah, how we interact with our kids and also the ex- expectation, right? Well, the expectation, the responsibility of it, and just like actually knowing where they are Yeah, as much as we can. So we're now firmly into the next day. So August 1st, and the girls are still not home. And around approximately 5 p.m., a woman named Janet Ranson calls Irma and asks her to come to her house. Who's Janet? Janet is the mother of a teenage girl who we're just going to refer to here as teenage girl, who is friends with Cynthia and Jackie. Okay, so this is the very next morning? The next evening. Oh, the next evening. So okay. at 5 p.m. So Janet calls Irma and asks for Irma to come over. So when Irma arrives, Janet shows Irma a pair of underwear. Ew. I am going to save you because the 1970s police reports keep using the word panties over and over. Okay. And that's like one of people's like squick ick words. Right. So thanks for using underwear, I guess. Yes. But why is she calling them over to show them? Okay. Her so underwear? this is a journey. This is starting out weird. It's we're we're is it weird? We're venturing into weird Ugh. territory. Okay. Okay. So Janet shows Irma the underwear because she thinks those underwear are Cynthia's. Okay. The underwear are quite distinct. They're purple with black lace trim. And on the front are the words, too hot to handle. So is the nature of the way the underwear look the reason for the phone call and the meeting? Yes. Okay. So now the underwear is really distinct and she calls Irma over to like verify that these are maybe Cynthia's. Now, alarmingly, there is some staining on the underwear and... Now, Irma says that her daughter was being treated by a doctor for two health issues. Now, this, again, this is heavily redacted in the police records, but from what I can tell, it sounds like these health issues likely included symptoms that included vaginal discharge and some small trace amounts of blood. Okay. So, like, something like yeast infection and urinary tract infection, for instance. Okay, and so did Irma think these were her daughter's 
underwear? Yes. She Okay. So she knew about these underwear. She these. knew about these underwear, right? And also there's like some staining on the underwear. So she's like, why is, Why did you just find my daughter's underwear? Why, yeah, why are why, my daughter's How, how do you have here? my kids' underwear? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So the – which we're going to get to in a second. So the presence of what looks like dried fluids on the underwear – Seems to suggest that they're Cynthia's, and that combined with the fact that she did have a pair that looked like this that were not in her dresser. So Irma goes home, and they are not in Cynthia's dresser. That adds the feeling that this pair of underwear is hers. I feel like we're invading this girl's privacy at this point. We're a little bit. Okay. So the fact that her girls aren't there, and then, like... This mom to her daughter's friends has just called and said, like, is this underwear your daughter's underwear? You know, Irma's like, something is up. Something's wrong. She calls the police. And so the police are going to come out and they're going to start interviewing people to kind of find what's going on. Because she hasn't heard from her daughters. It's now been a significant amount of time. They're not home. And so now she's got this feeling like something has happened. How did Janet end up with a pair of underwear in the first place? Right. How did she? Right. This is where we are going to encounter a man named Stacy Ranson, who is the husband of Janet and the father to the teenage friend. And Stacy says he is the one who found the pair of underwear. Stacy's story is that he, along with his nephew James, saw Cynthia and Jackie walking west on Baseline Road at around 7 p.m. on July 31st. So the night they disappear... He sees them at 7 o'clock walking. Right. Okay. And now we're going to get to the underwear part. Oh, okay. okay. So the next day, so around August 1st at approximately 4.40, Daisy says he and his nephew saw two male motorcyclists just north of Baseline on Power Road, and he says they witnessed these two men standing alongside the road holding something in their hands. Okay. So that doesn't sound unusual unless the thing they're holding was the underwear also is he out with james again like they're just always out together at least i yeah i got the impression okay yeah they're running errands so stacy and, kind of and james are out they see motorcyclists staring at something yes. in their hands and so stacy says that when he and his nephew returned the motorcyclists were gone and so he decides to stop to investigate exactly what they had been looking at please don't tell me it was the underwear when he does, he notices a pair of underwear. And so he collects it and brings it back home to his wife, Janet. Okay. So so Stacy mm -hmm. and his nephew, James, thinks it's a good idea to pick up the street underwear. Yes. And bring it home to his wife. Right. Who, who would do that? I mean, I can pretty much guarantee my husband will never bring home a pair of street underwear if he saw a pair of underwear on the side of the road he would just keep walking i feel like nobody i know would bring home a pair of street underwear right okay okay, okay carry on okay so that's when janet the wife who's now been handed this pair of underwear found on the side of the road recognizes the underwear as cynthia's how does she know what cynthia's underwear looks like I get the impression that essentially 
Cynthia is spending time at her house and has perhaps brought this pair of underwear there before. I don't know. It gets a little... It gets a little weird because I do weird. not know what any of my children's friends underwear look like nor do i ever want to exactly like i barely know what my own kids underwear looks like and i do the laundry right yeah okay so i don't know i'm i'm feeling like this portion of the story is is weird it is weird indeed and a little uncomfortable and i feel like a little like this girl's privacy yeah because we're talking about her underwear at length here we are okay so Jana calls irma When the police arrive, what they're dealing with is two missing sisters and a pair of underwear that may, or may not in their minds, belong to one of the girls. So despite the question of the underwear and what is going on in this kind of weirdness, police sort of focus on whether or not the girls ran away at all. And both Irma and Albert have a few reasons that they think their daughters are not runaways. And we've talked in the past about how if they're runaways, it still matters if they're safe mm-hmm. or not. So it doesn't mean we can just ignore the case. Absolutely. And they're still children. They're exactly. 13 and 15. We do not let kids run away. Exactly. If they run away, we find them and bring them back. Right. And get them any services they might need. Right. Yeah. So in the 1970s, though, particularly, because we've been talking a lot about 1970s cases, they often will be like, well, they're runaways. Case dismissed. Farewell. <laughs> Farewell. We'll be back in a moment. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page. Something is creeping in. Don't follow it down. Let me introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. The type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy. And you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. You stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless the long con. That's clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. Irma and Albert, they've got their list of reasons why, like, hey, please, please pay attention and follow up on this. The first is that Albert's cancer is terminal. Even with the move to Mesa, he was only expected to live a few months longer. And Irma says Albert and his daughters were super close. And he spent time with them. He took them water skiing. She just doesn't think it's possible that they'd leave him at this time as he's nearing the end of his life. Which is probably true. Number two, Albert was planning on taking them on a trip to Page, Arizona, where they had lived before. 
And this is something that they'd been looking forward to. They were leaving in a few days. And with a trip to look forward to, would they leave? Unlikely. Three, the girls didn't take any clothing with them. And Cynthia left her contacts and her glasses behind. Okay, so none of this is looking planned. Not to me, no. no. Four, the girls didn't take their purses with them, which indicates that they're not bringing, like, extra money or they're any kind of regular, everyday kind of things. And five, Irma doesn't say this, but I'm adding it in here, which is Cynthia was under treatment for her health concerns and had just started taking antibiotics. And she was only like two pills in to her series when she disappeared. And this medication, I'm guessing, was also left behind. Right. Can I add a six in there? Like when you're starting to find articles of clothing on the side of the road, usually you should investigate. Yeah, so police, though, are like, weird, underwear. Hmm. They did collect the underwear, though, and it is entered into evidence. Okay, but it's just, to me, that would be, like, something terrible happened. Right. In my head. They they do collect, collect it. It's added to evidence, but they're still a little wishy-washy on the situation. Now, going back to point one, which is Irma doesn't believe that the girls would run away while their father is having his last few months, I'm offering a small counterpoint that police invest a bunch of time into, which is that on April 1st, so a few months prior to their disappearance, the girl's father had gone to police asking for the whereabouts of his daughter, Cynthia. She had left home and he believed that she might be with a woman named Joanne in the town of Page. So at some other point, she'd run away? Yes. So a few months before, she actually had run away. Okay. He eventually finds her in the company of this woman and brings Cynthia back home. And who's this woman? Well, she's a pretty intriguing figure that police just, like, invest a whole lot of their early efforts into. Seeing that she lived in Page at the same time the Leslies had, and her place was kind of known as a destination house or maybe, like, party house. And it seemed like a lot of area teens, like younger people, would go there. Police learned that Joanne had headed to Colorado a few weeks before the disappearance of the girls. And what they dig into this, they find out she's traveling with two men and that they may have been planning an armed robbery. Oh, okay. Okay. Just throw that in there. Yeah. There was some rumors circulating that these Three, Joanne and these two men were traveling as well with two teenage girls, but that doesn't seem to be true once they follow up on that. So was she traveling at the time that they disappeared or no? Well, so she she went to Colorado and they she was kind of bouncing around different places. And yeah, so she's kind of mobile at this time. So they spend a lot of time finding where is she? Does she have the girls with her? Is that what's going on? Okay. On August 2nd, the Leslies were finally put on file as missing persons. And this is the same day that the crime lab determines that there is both blood and semen on the pair of underwear. Okay, so it's not just... You're right. Okay. And at the time, they couldn't do more additional testing with the amount of blood that they had. Has that been DNA tested since then? It doesn't seem so. And because back then they would have been matching for blood type only, right? Okay, but now we can do stuff with everything. Now we can do more stuff. So if that underwear is still there, 
it would seem that that could be brought in for more testing. It seems like that should be brought in for more testing if it's still there. Yes, indeed. This is a lot more than we talked about in the documentary. It is, yeah. So once we, you know, got this large police file, this really opens up more of the story. Were you kind of shocked when you found out that there's so much more to it that you didn't really know about before? You know, I had really just gone on like, oh, they were, did they make it to the party or did they not? Right. And now we've got this whole like underwear situation. We've got like, oh, some answers about like there was this boyfriend and some feelings about that. We've got like, oh, Cynthia's been, her father had to go looking for Cynthia before. So I think there's like a lot of. And then this Joanne woman, like there's like a woman. lot happening now. So it's gone from like what seemed like a pretty simple disappearance to wow what is happening right so meanwhile while the police are spending time on this joanne angle the leslies are trying to figure out what's going on with the ransoms and albert goes and questions the daughter the teenage daughter and janet and while he's talking to them he gets pretty upset with them he believes that they, particularly the teenage girl, know more than they're saying, and he wants answers. Yeah, they seem just very oddly involved at this point. So, like, what's their story? Right. So the police are, agree. They decide that they're going to go talk to the Ransons as well. The teenager does reveal to police that her father, Stacy, was discharged from the military under undesirable circumstances. Okay. Yeah, so this is casting some, like, suspicions in his direction. Yeah. Like, is he a good guy or not? He's definitely an oddball. But police are unable to confirm, like, his service record. So kind of dead ends there. After the police talk to the Ransons, they're back trying to figure out something else. So that didn't yield much. They encounter two people who are able to provide some eyewitness reports that might lead us in a different direction. And one is a man named Steve Townsend. He owns the grove adjacent to where the pair of underwear was found. Okay, so we're bringing in a whole another A whole new person. person. So Steve says that on July 31st, between 6 p.m. and 7 p.m., He was on the southwest corner of Power and Baseline when he saw a light blue Pinto heading west. Do we know anyone that has a light blue Pinto yet? Not yet. Okay. It stopped, and he says two white girls got out of the vehicle. He says he remembers them wearing maybe halter tops, and possibly one was wearing shorts and the other jeans. But he does remember that they both had long, dark hair, like the Leslie sisters. After they got out of the car, the two white girls start walking north on Power Road while the car continues west on Baseline. And we'll pop a map up on our website just for some added clarity. Okay, so when Stacy saw the girls walking, he said it was around 7 o'clock. Did he say they were walking north? He said he saw them on Baseline. So Baseline baseline runs east-west power runs north south okay so now we're seeing them on power at approximately in the same time frame between 6 p.m and 7 p.m okay and it's not confirmed that it's them it's two white girls 
looks similar. Wait, and which one were the un- the underwear was found on? On power. On power, and that's where he's where yeah. Steve is seeing them now. Yes. Okay. Okay. So, so he says that he then sees the car turn around. So it's on baseline, and it turns around, comes back, and then heads north on power, where it stops, and the girls get back in the car and head north. Okay. So it sounds like something that would have been strange enough that he would have Noticed remembered it. that. Yes. Yeah. The second person that they question is a male runaway teenager who was working for Townsend Farms. So this is the farm that's owned by Steve Townsend. And that farm is on the corner of Baseline and Power. So we're, we're in okay. that So this boy's area. a runaway and he works for Steve. So he was not a runaway just yet. So oh. the male teenager on July 31st asks Steve Townsend for his paycheck early. And he's given his paycheck early and the kid says, I guess I'm not coming back. And then he kind of disappears. This is the same day that the girls go, the missing. Girls go missing. Yes. The teenager was reported as a runaway by his family on July 31st. And on August 9th, he's found and brought in for questioning about whether or not he knows anything about the Leslie sisters. And what does he say? He says that on the night they disappeared, he was on the northeast corner. Steve Townsend is on the southwest corner. So he's on the northeast corner of Power and Baseline at around... 7 p.m. They're kitty corner. Yeah. So they're all in the same vicinity. Okay. So you've got Steve Townsend. He's on the southwest corner. He says he sees this blue pinto. You've got this runaway teenager who's not a runaway just yet. He's on the northeast corner. Okay. And then you also have Stacy Ranson who said he saw the girls also on baseline. And it's all happening at about the same time, on yes. the same day. Right. That's a lot. Well, because it's all witnesses witnessing maybe the same thing. Okay. So the kid says, this runaway teenager, he says that he was there on this corner, and what he saw was the same thing that Steve Townsend saw, a blue Pinto heading west on baseline, dropping off two girls, those girls going north on power, the car turning around, coming back, and picking them up. So Stacy's seeing the same exact thing. So at this point, because Stacy was giving me kind of creeped out vibes before, he's just actually watching this happen. He's not involved. Well, so Stacy doesn't see the Pinto situation. He says that he just saw the Leslie sisters walking on baseline. Okay. And... You know, one difference here is that we can confirm that Stacy Ranson does know what the Leslie sisters look like because they're his daughter's friends. So when he says he saw them, it gives a little bit more validity to it. The other two witnesses, Steve Townsend and this teenage boy, I don't believe they know the Leslie sisters. And so they're like, well, there were these two white girls with long brown hair and we saw this situation with a blue pinto. But it is all in the same area at the same time. So they do not know the girls. It's just so weird that the boy is about their age. And kind of poofed. And kind of disappears at the same time. 
but doesn't know these girls. Yeah. I just, yeah. Okay. That's okay. So he's just a witness, purely a witness. There's a lot going on here. There is. So this teenage boy, he says that the driver of the Blue Pinto appears to be a Hispanic male around the ages of 25 to 30, but he didn't really get much of a view of him because he never got out of the vehicle. So what police start doing is just pulling over Blue Pintos. Why yeah. not? They also did the same thing with the with motorcyclists because, you know, Stacy Ranson said there were motorcyclists holding the pair of underwear. So they're just like randomly just pulling over people, asking them questions. They also do a few aerial searches looking for the girls because, again, we have groves and farmland, so they're hoping to get a better view. But while they're at it, they're also like, let's look for some blue pintos. Well, it seems to be, I guess, their best chance at this point. Yeah, and but those searches, they don't turn up anything. One of the places they can go back to to get more information is the Ransons. And so they revisit them. And they ask the Ranson teen, does she know anything about Blue Pintos? And she was like, I don't know anyone with a Blue Pinto. And she emphasizes at that time that on the night the Leslie sisters disappeared, that she wasn't even home and that she had gone and spent the night elsewhere. Okay, so did she see them at all that evening? She says no. Okay. So as they kind of, police kind of circle back to them again, they're just like kind of looking for new information. In late August, so we're in now several weeks, they take Janet, who had called Irma, they take her to the Mesa substation for questioning. She's reluctant to go. She does not want to go. And she tells police that she was told that she shouldn't be talking to them without a court order. Why would she need a court order to talk to them? So her husband, Stacy, says, don't talk to the police. Stacy. I don't know. He's not looking great right now. With her at this questioning is her teenage daughter. Now, the teenage daughter is wearing a necklace with two purple stones on it. And police are interested in this necklace. Irma has told the police that she purchased a necklace that looks just like this for one of her girl's birthdays. This is, the name is redacted in the police report, but I'm guessing it's Cynthia's birthday. Irma tells the police that she had seen the teenage friend wearing this necklace a while after the sisters disappeared. And when she asked her about it, the girl denied it belonging to Cynthia. And this necklace is not in their home anymore. No. So it's either on her daughter or on this girl. Right. And when police ask the teenage girl about the necklace, she changes her story and she says that Cynthia gave it to her. Now that she knows that the mother saw that it is the necklace. Now she's changing her story. Well, now that she's being questioned by someone other than Irma, right? In October, so we're now months out, police try to make contact with one of their subjects again. Again, heavily redacted, don't know who they were trying to talk to. But he says he's tired of the police contacting them. And unless they have something on him, he refuses to talk to them again. My first assumption was that it was Stacy Ranson Uh whose name was redacted there, particularly after what he said to his wife about don't talk to the police. Right. But 
His name is left in in that same page where they contact him and they ask to speak to his daughter and he claims that she's sick and can't talk to them. So it just feels like we are now a few months in and people are starting to clam up. Which seems really strange if it's just a runaway case. Right. Because I would be like, talk to me all you want. Right. Why would you, why would yeah. you go to this? Yeah. So police are just trying to talk to anyone who will talk to them. They do learn that the girls had been at a party in the desert on the 27th of July. And so you'll see a lot of places say that the party that the girls went to, that one story, was a party in the desert. So I think that's where the things get are getting a little mushy. So they're the getting a little confused. So it was a party a few days before they disappeared, not the night that they disappeared. Night. Right. right. They also had attended a party, an apartment party in Mesa a few days before. And the partygoers there said that the girls came a few times to party at this apartment. And while they were there, they tended to drink beer and smoke pot. This is a lot of parties. Yeah. I mean, 1970s, you're in the desert of Arizona, in Mesa. I don't know if there's like a lot going on besides parties, right? But, you know... The girls, again, had just moved to Mesa. So it's not like the partygoers know, like, a lot about the sisters. Right. Yeah. And this is where leads really seem to start to dry up. There's some news coverage of the case, which does spur some people to call in to say that they saw them, usually at various hotels or motels. But those leads don't pan out. By the end of the month, though he's dying of cancer, their father goes to Los Angeles to speak to a psychic in the hopes that she'll give him some leads. They included that in the case? Yeah. So this is actually something that we've been seeing a little bit in cases, particularly in the 1970s, is like, for instance, we just talked about Cynthia Hernandez's case a few episodes ago, and her mom also went to psychic. So it's just like, it seems like if you're looking for answers and you're desperate for answers, like... It was the thing. It was the thing. And when police revisit Irma, you can see her trying to desperately think of everything possible, any possible lead for her daughters. Who were they spending time with? What are their names? Like, she's trying to recall their names, right? Right. Was it someone in the past that they might have met? So she's, like, thinking through, like, well, the girls, like, went to a carnival a few months before. Like, who were those boys that they talked to there, etc. And you can just see her desperately trying to think of everything possible to tell police sad kind of you know like having to think through that because what else does she have to go by at this point exactly and one thing about the police files is that you can start to see where they start to drift away from the case like the interviews become fewer and fewer you know stacy ranson said his daughter was sick and couldn't go in for questioning and you don't actually see a follow-up so the police are just kind of like letting it go at this point right okay and that's fairly typical of a lot of the cases that we've looked at. And I'm really not surprised in this case because I know in 1977, so we're like three years after they disappeared, a new Maricopa County Sheriff takes over and he says that the departments are severely understaffed and they're unable to investigate cases to the level they need. He, in fact, says they're about six years behind on their caseload. So that makes sense for what happened. Yeah, so... And if they weren't getting any leads, it would be hard to put their energy there when there's probably so much else to do. Right. So to kind of give it some perspective, when the new sheriff takes over, they find that there have been 88 homicides reported in the the county. 
since 1970, so in the course of seven years, and 24 of those 88 are unsolved. Okay. And, you know, this is why when Irma's talking about how, like, she just feels like people were not paying attention to her daughter's case, like, there's a lot of validity there. Right. They had a lot going on. Right. And they, there was a lot of talk about mismanagement of funds and mismanagement of staffing happening. The girl's father, Albert, he passes away in February of 1975, so a few months after they disappeared. This leaves Irma alone to kind of champion their case. So she sends out missing persons flyers with her brothers who were truckers to get them to as many places around the country as possible. And for many years, they would get calls basically about like girls that looked similar or sisters that were together. Irma also stayed in the same mobile home park until 1999. And even though she remarried, she kept her number listed under the name Leslie just in case. So she just never gave up hope. Right. And after 1999, she moved to be closer to her oldest daughter. And she still kept her girls' belongings in some trunks. And she packed in there their flutes, their roller skates, and some of their clothing. And that's really all she has left of her daughters. That's horribly sad. Yeah. Irma has lived her life without being able to watch her daughters grow up or celebrate their birthdays or have holidays with them. And that's unfortunately where the story rests at the moment. So we never had any other ideas on like what actually happened to these girls? No. Not, no conclusions have been made on anything? No. You know, the police file is, is quite long at 260 pages. Police do follow up on some various leads but like so many of the other ones that we talked about today like they just didn't pan out into something bigger there's no solid suspects on people like you said that there was like uh, some feeds online where people are talking about these things is there any like just curiosity like i know like the police don't seem to have anything any strong leads on one person right mm -hmm. but do the people online what, what are they speculating well, most, most of the speculation will rest with, like, the boyfriend, or is it possible that they were abducted? Now, because we got the police file, this is actually a lot of original reporting here that people in the online forums do not have access to. And so, for instance, there is not a discussion of, like, the Blue Pinto, because that is not part of the conversation that's happening online. There is also, like, only slight chatterings about the underwear situation and that's only because some of their leslie family members have said like oh i think i've heard about a little bit about about this angle and what about like stacy and his daughter is there any talk about them on there no and that's like the, the part i'm like eh. yeah that seems weird that this guy wasn't looked at more or his daughter wasn't yeah you know which is like the the difference between it's going back to what I said earlier about nuance, right? And the stories that we think we know versus the stories like once you get the police reports, right? I think that sometimes changes the story. Right, because this is wildly different than than the story you presented to me like three years ago when we started working together. Right. Um, just based on just that, having that police report. Yeah, because the story that I knew then was... The two sisters were supposed to be going babysitting and they actually just snuck away to a party and they may or may not have been at the party. And that's basically the extent of what many people know or what's publicly available about this information. So is there any hope at this point of ever finding out what happened to these girls? 
honestly, I think if there's renewed interest and there is still in evidence some of those items, like the underwear, possibility of those being tested to rule out in that direction or not. That underwear contains, you know, both body fluids like vaginal discharge and also semen. So you could identify like, gee, those body fluids belong to one of the girls. Does the semen belong to somebody? Right. It seems like... I mean, it does belong to somebody. Well, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It does belong to somebody. Um, But it just seems like at this point, if it was reinvestigated, it seems like it would be a better chance of of coming to some sort of conclusion now at this point. Right. Yeah. But this is a story of two girls who wanted to sneak away for an evening. It looks like they had every intention of coming back home and they didn't make it. We will now listen to Amy's poem, Stridulation, read by Catherine McKenzie. Catherine McKenzie was born and raised in Montreal, Canada, where she practiced law for 20 years before leaving the practice to write full-time. She's the author of numerous bestsellers, including Hidden, Fractured, The Good Liar, and I'll Never Tell. Her works, Please Join Us and I'll Never Tell, have been optioned for development into television series. And her newest novel, Have You Seen Her, is now available. Stridulation. Cynthia and Jackie Leslie, 15 and 13, missing since July 31st, 1974, from Mesa, Arizona. That claustrophobic night, the trees in the orange grove hunched like sleeping flamingos, while the sisters two-step shuffled down the block, towing up dust. They left behind the rows of tin can homes, just as the sky pinked, moved away from the echo of every television set, playing the same evening news show, and the scuttle of scorpions hiding in palm trees that only ever gave him columns of shade. Their father, body blackening, sat in an armchair as the chemicals took hold in his blood. They told him babysitting, fingers crossed behind their backs. On the way to the party, the youngest bumped her sister with her hip, sharp bone clacking against sharp bone. They giggled, thought about the cool press of glass, the taste of malt coating their tongues, the feel of boys' hands sliding up the seam of their jeans, and the rustle of dry lips nodding together. From behind, a car, its colored grit, its engine flattened by the rasp of cicadas pulsing the night air, their hollowed bodies clicking open and closed. The sisters walked on until the headlights burned against their bare skin. But before anything could happen, the girls reached down, grabbed each other's hands, and held on tight. For more information about our show or to check out other shows on the network, please visit evergreenpodcast.com. Bye, Vanessa. Bye, Amy. So when the scammer uses the hypnotic method of building rapport, then they create dysfunctional, delusional reality. That's how a scam begins, convincing the mark that it makes perfect sense to hand over their money to a con artist. The Scams and Cons podcast tells you how scams are run. You'll hear how people are convinced to buy fake art, buy machines that print money, or steal your house. I get a phone call from my wife, and she let me know that they had decided to move all our stuff out. I can no longer do anything about it except go through an eviction. And you'll hear it from the experts. 
people who run the cons. So we go to your bank, you go in and get 6,000 cash, give us each 3,000, we give you this. Uh-huh. You go home and what you find out is cut up newspaper. It's fun to know how the trick is done. And that's what Scams and Cons is all about. Listen at scamsandcons.com or wherever fine podcasts are found. 24 hours ago, I found out the person I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a con man. That is my sister, Emma. Andrew Tonks' lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series, and that's when murder, all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real-life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con. <laughs> 